Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Welcome to episode 81 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This will be part five of my discussion with Bill Bupert of Zero Gov on the topic of the history of irregular warfare. And this was originally going to be our last episode in this miniseries, and I think you'll even hear me refer to that in our discussion, but take no mind of that. It actually will not be. There will, in fact, be a sixth episode in this series yet to come. You see, what happened was we were originally going to make part five, this part, our last part, and it was going to be kind of a long one. But then when we were recording part five, when we were just shy of an hour into our discussion, the gods of the interwebs decided to smite us and smite us good. So we called it quits for the day and we tried to reconvene a few days later, still had problems. And since then, Bill and I have not been able to connect again. So I decided that since we already had about an hour's worth of material recorded, I'd go ahead and make that into a standalone episode five and that we'd still... When we could reconvene, we could make one more, covering all the additional things we had planned on discussing, you know, whenever in the future we can successfully get back in touch. But before we get into episode five of this miniseries, just a quick shout out to our newest Patreon supporter of the show. Big thanks to Will for stepping up to help out the DHP over at patreon.com slash profcj. Remember, pledge to support the show for any amount per episode, and I will thank you by name on the next episode that I record. And if you pledge at least a buck per episode, more is certainly welcome, by the way, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode. You'll have access to special bonus episodes I'm releasing on Patreon about every four to six weeks, and these bonus episodes are available nowhere else. All right, so part five of The History of Irregular Warfare with Bill Bupert. Bill, welcome back to our fifth and final installment in this uh, groundbreaking landmark series we've been doing here. Thanks. Once again, CJ, it's it's an honor to be here, and I know that this has morphed into uh, a, a larger number of episodes than you and I had both anticipated, and I'm hoping that this is not the denouement for my appearances with you on this program, because seriously, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversations that, that we've had. I thought that Ben Stone was one of the only guys out there who could sort of match me peer to peer on historical stuff. And you you're up to the task, if not exceeding it. So I'm happy to be here. Well, well, thank you. That's that's a good company to be in for sure. And I would definitely be happy to have you back on in the future to talk about, you know, various other topics. We can always talk about the Irish Rebellion, can't we? Yeah, we can do a 14 episode series. (laughs) On the Easter <laughs> Rising right. to get things started. Yes, we could. To be followed by a 12-episode series on 1916 to 1922. Yeah. Yeah, at least 12. Okay, so um, this episode, what we're we're going to be doing is, is kind of wrapping all the things together since we've talked about some specific 
individual case studies and things like that and the origins of this type of war, we're going to be tying together, looking at the big picture, right, looking back at irregular warfare in the modern era and and what sort of conclusions can we draw from this, what sort of lessons can we derive from this, and is there you know anything anything useful we can get out of this? So the first question that I wanted to ask Bill uh, today is, what are some of the key factors that cause some insurgencies to succeed or to fail? Well, I want to point out something that we're doing really, really I haven't heard any other podcast do or even any academic inquiry really do a lot of digging in this. And that's, I refer to these coindonistas. The coindonistas are that intellectual cabal in the DOD and the U.S. government and, and Western governments where they really dig these newfangled, smaller-than-conventional war conflicts that they think that they can confine, they can strategically massage and manage. And one thing every sober observer who isn't intellectually drunk on state power notices is that they simply don't work out as planned. For instance, right now, if the audience pays attention to the news and has been paying attention to the news, you realize that the IS, ISIL, ISIS, some people are calling it CIA ISIS, that was designed to take down Assad's government by arming, supplying, and training those insurgents to take down Assad in concert or or beside al-Qaeda, have gone out of control, and they are presently involved in conflicts in no less than seven nation states in the Middle East, to include Libya, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and places in the Horn of Africa. The reason I bring that up is because you and I are going to spend a lot of time, I think, during this episode trying to deconstruct and disprove the Coindonistas as a working, sane, and viable foreign policy option for the West. I just think it's been an unmitigated disaster for a variety of reasons. And if I may, I had recommended Counterinsurgency Exposing the Myths of the New Way of War by Douglas Porch, who's one of my favorite historical authors, especially when it comes to French history, because he spent a lot of time with that. And on uh, page 311 in this book, he talks about Ricks, Thomas Ricks, who's written for foreign policy magazines and such. And he's the one who wrote the book called Fiasco and the Gamble. And of late, one calls the generals, where he does this kind of triumphalist narrative that harkens back to the 19th century of how the United States and the West may not have gotten things right, but darn, they gave, it, they gave it such a good try. So he says here, and I quote, but no one seems to have picked up that the subtext of fiasco and the gamble is Vietnam with a happy ending. Prince Howe comes to his senses, banishes Fat Jack, and sallies forth to win Agincourt. One problem with coin, as Petraeus realized in his Princeton thesis, is that a strategy of victory without battles lacks the drama of a decisive outcome which is the common grammar of war and its interpretation by military professionals and civil society. If coin video games have yet to flood the market, it's because coin is perceived as a slow, ambiguous process lacking in good versus evil drama. The surge saturated Iraqi cities with U.S. forces as a PR exercise to create the perception of an about-face of American fortunes. By the way, let me interject here. That's about the uh, Anbar province where they were taking the Sunnis, arming the Sunnis, and having the awakening in Anbar. And by the way, the Sunnis happen to be less than 5% of the population. But during Saddam Hussein's reign, the Sunnis 
were the minority position, but they were the ones who ruled over the entire country, primarily of Shia. It goes on, the role of Ricks, an affiliate of the Center for New American Security, Washington's Coindonista K Street, stocked up on influential reporters, and following on the footsteps of other small wars-friendly journalists since the time of Bougot, Ricks must make coin sexy by representing Petraeus' Baghdad arrival in the manner of Lawrence's approach to the Hejaz as a game-changing <laughs> epiphany of U.S. strategy. To do this, he resurrects all the hoary deja vu indictments of unimaginative, bureaucratic, heavy army warriors and their whiz-kid Pentagon bosses who had to be rescued from defeat after the misapplied practices of formerly glorious airland battle, the revolution in military affairs, declared bankruptcy in Iraq by nimble, dazzling soldier scholars with PhDs in history and anthropology and their light infantry army leader. In fact, the complete Petraeus guy's narrative does not begin with Haditha, but with its mirror image, the 1969 Green Beret Affair. And he goes on in here to levy these incredibly deep and penetrating criticisms of why the Coindonistas got it all wrong. And in my interpretation of his book, when I try to draw out maybe a single precy or abstract of what Porch is trying to get across, what he's saying is that the Coindonistas are the champions of a kind of conflict today that is familiar to people like CJ, myself, and members of the audience who are listening out there who have read the books about the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century and these colonial conflicts, because that's what these are. These are small wars, petty wars, imperial wars. They don't like to use the word imperial, though, because they've got to whisper that word because it has such bad political baggage, which brings me to one of my conclusions that I've arrived at, and CJ and I have discussed this. What disturbs me so much about everything that the Coindonistas have done is twofold. Number one, they are taking domestic police functions, and for the most part, marrying these domestic police functions to military conquest frameworks that they set up in these countries that are occupied and invaded, not necessarily in that order. And they set them up in a way that causes all kinds of strife within the object of the very strategic framework that they're operating in, for instance, in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is no one who is sober and has paid attention who can say that Iraq was an American victory. No one can say that of Afghanistan. Certainly no one can say that of Libya. And Syria is yet to come, but my prediction is Syria is going to be the same martial disaster for the West that the rest of it has been. I said twofold, and here's the second fold. And this is what concerns me the most as an American subject. And CJ has alluded to this before. Everything empires do abroad, it always comes home. And I would suggest to you that it comes home in an even worse fashion than was done in the countries that have been used by the Koinonistas as their little small war laboratories. So the question CJ asked me is, what are some key factors that cause some, some insurgencies to succeed or fail? The thing that he and I are going to do during this program, and I think that we've done for the other four episodes, is that we're not going to be quoting RAND studies. We're not going to be talking about coin best practices. We're not going to be talking about why they fail and why they went. What we want to talk about is why insurgencies succeed and fail. Because from my perspective, especially as a philosophical abolitionist who believes that government is one of the worst, one, one of the worst disease vectors that has ever infected humanity as far as liberty and freedom is concerned. The prosecution of coin by the military industrial complex in the West does nothing to free the people who are the object of the coin frameworks and does nothing to free the people who are supposedly being made more safe 
by these conflicts abroad in the home countries that spend the treasure, spend the troops' lives, maim these troops, because it all comes home to rest. How does, a, how does an insurgency succeed? Well, one thing you can do to succeed as an insurgency is you should have a Muslim character to it. Because if you do, since 1945, I can't recall in my studies, which is a bit deeper than shallow, that I found one in which a Muslim insurgency has been defeated. How do the insurgencies fail? Well, there is Malaya, for instance, but there's very specialized circumstances why that happened. There is the Kikuyu in Kenya, which we talked about in the last episode, and that one managed to fail. Why did it manage to fail? Because the British exterminated and neutralized and liquidated nearly 25% of the Kikuyu population. Here's what I, the, the term I like to use, CJ, when it comes to this is, it's really hard to eradicate cannibalism by eating the cannibals. So basically the only times then insurgencies fail, in, at least in the long term, is either if there's virtually genocide taking place or if, if the insurgents don't really have popular support, as was the case to a large extent in Malaya. Uh, is, is that am I reading the, that right? The insert, yeah, you're right. The insurgency, their broad strategic framework was not mature or well-informed. They were completely cut off from any external support or sanctuary. And the use of concentration camps, which was imposed on the citizenry who weren't directly involved with the MCP insurgency, the Malayan Communist Party insurgency. You know, they took almost the entire country of Malays, Chinese, and, and other smaller ethnic groups, and they put them in these these concentration camps. So, you know, they, they surrounded villages and towns with barbed wire. Now, what happens, by the way, what's an implied task or an inference one would draw from living in a concentration camp? Do you think they would impose internal passport controls and identification regimes in order to make sure that who's in there stays in there or who's in there is supposed to be in there? Oh, sure. Well, of course they would. Now, would that have broader implications if that's not lifted after the insurgency disappears? Of course it would, you know, as we're seeing now. I, I mean, I read the other day, CJ, that apparently in the United States in the next 24 months, some countries, I mean, some some states in the United States who have not complied with the Department of Fatherland Security's Real ID Act to, to the extent that DHS approves you will have to present a U.S. tourist passport to travel from Nebraska to Iowa. And I throw that out there as, as, as a, for instance, those states may not be accurate as far as what you'd have to use, but I know that there's four to six states in which DHS has proposed requiring passports because the real IDs aren't sufficient enough for the identification regime that the U.S. wants people to have internally. Well, they are very, very concerned with our safety. I mean, they really do. <laughs> yes, they they yes, really they do are. want us safe. Safe safe from what? I'm not sure. I guess safe from, uh, yeah. from being being free. And by the way, I said that we wouldn't discuss RAND studies, but if you don't mind, CJ, if you can post on your really exquisitely detailed show notes, which, which I think is terrific, I, I'm going to send you a RAND study in which there's key findings from a RAND perspective. The RAND Corporation is, is a... Uh, it's a government-sponsored think tank that comes up with the usual answers to questions you would assume the government would want it to answer in that way. Uh, one thing they say that's interesting is the Iron Fist coin path focuses primarily on eliminating the insurgent threat is historically less successful. A motive-based path, now that would be either population-centric or insurgent-centric, has been much more successful. But I'm here to tell you this is what Rand is saying. 
I don't see that historically in the record. I, I, I find it a lot of hot air. Yeah, although I, I think they got the first half of that statement essentially correct that the harder you crack down, the more you generally strengthen the insurgency. I mean, every, everything I've ever read about fourth generation Agreed. warfare indicates that. Agreed. I mean, you and I discussed that when it came to the Spanish ulcer and what would happen. Yeah. You know, when Napoleon did use the iron fist approach, all of a sudden they came out of the woodwork. You know, a friend of mine was fond of saying, and I'm paraphrasing, it's really hard to maim and kill men's women and children fast enough not to get them enlisting in the resistance ranks. Sure. And and that seems yeah. to be just a flat out universal thing. And half the time, the insurgency might be a tiny, tiny minority that doesn't have much popular support. And it's actually the state cracking down that turns it into a much larger insurgency with a lot more popular support. Indeed. As a matter of fact, uh, I run zerogov.com and my latest blog posting on there was a fictional narrative that that wrote on the coattails of the previous blog accounting of of the emerging domestic insurgency I think is going to occur because of the iron fist approach of American policing. I do think that Newton's third law is going to come into being. All right. So what about the question of external help from states or from other organizations or institutions to insurgents? How important is that? It, it certainly seems like it matters, but it, is it really essential or is it just helpful? Or what do you think? I would say it's essential to most success. Uh, what you discover, for instance, is that the government classifies insurgencies and, and terrorism in three different flavors. You have state-supported, state-sponsored, and non-state-supported and sponsored terrorism and or insurgency. And let, let me review very quickly something I said. I think it was in episode two, so that people are clear on this. One can be a terrorist and be an insurgent, but one doesn't necessarily have to be a terrorist as an insurgent. In other, in, in other words, you could be a terrorist and insurgent at the same time, but you could also be an insurgent who doesn't practice terrorist practices, if that makes sense. Right, because terrorism is yeah. a specific tactic. And, and, and you were kind enough to put Caleb Carr's book up, I think it was after episode one or two, The Lessons of Terror. And he's given me the best definition I've found, which, by the way, rides along nicely with what even the U.S. government says in most of the West, which is that terrorism is politically motivated violence levied against noncombatants and innocents. And I always like to add, notice that no government on planet Earth could exist for a day if they didn't practice that on a daily basis. And no police force could exist if they didn't practice that. Yeah, and that's probably why when you go to, to most places for a definition of terrorism, most of the time there's a little caveat in there about non-state actors or, you know, it's it's the use of terror by non-states to, to do something, uh, to you achieve know, a political it, goal. You know, CJ, what's interesting, we could spend an episode talking about the classification of combatants, non-combatants, and, and the way that's been wickered in violation of the Geneva and Hague conventions to make it very convenient to have black sites, to have rendition, to have these extraordinary ways in which they'll they'll just nab people in a snatch and grab in the dead of night, shatter doors and such, and uh, take them away and either disappear them or send them into torture villages or whatever the case may be. And they do that by making up the, these, these fabricated and make-believe conceptions that if your country's occupied and you're fighting it and you're not in uniform, you're not regarded as a normal combatant. You're regarded as maybe a non-state actor, maybe 
you know, and combatant who doesn't have to be rendered. If one's paying attention to it, and we did see this during the war to save Joseph Stalin, where the Germans and the Americans and the West and the British were very conscientious about the treatment of prisoners because of reciprocity. They were very concerned about that. What you find here is that when they do that and they, 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 they wicker this combat to mean different things and legalese and such, they do themselves a disservice if they're trying to win these conflicts whenever that happens. For instance, I've always thought, historically, wouldn't it be great if politicians assumed combatant status in any war that they're involved in? For instance, nice. whether it's World War II, World War I, Vietnam, Korea, you know, there's a sort of little limp-wristed prohibition where, well, you can't assassinate the politicians. You can't gun down the politicians because they're just there to, you know, pull the strings and such. But you can do it to soldiers. Well, what kind of incentive structure would be set up if every time a politician declared war, sent his soldiers forward and, of course, didn't follow in their stead to engage in the martial pugilism, pugilism himself? What would happen if he was not only eligible for targeting, but he was a genuine combatant and assumed that status where he could be assassinated? I'll bet that would put the brakes on a lot of the imperial mischief you've seen in the last hundred years. Oh, yes. Yeah. Suddenly the top ranking politicians would be singing Give Peace a Chance and, you know, all kinds of other yep. hippie songs. Now, mind you, in America, which is no longer a free country, just the fact that I have voiced that should concern everybody. Because they could come down and say, well, I guess you've made threats against your, your political masters. You know, isn't the word politician, this is a slight segue, it'll only take me a sentence. I don't like the word politician because I, I think it, it, it doesn't have the connotation it should. I call them violence brokers because that's what they are. For instance, in every political science class that you and I suffered through, CJ, how much could that instructor or teacher talk about if he couldn't use a, a bat a stick or advocate hitting and stealing for government activity. Could he say anything during the hour of class? No, you, you can't really have politics without, uh, without threats with the bat, without the bat, you got to have the bat. Yeah. And you, you have to hit and steal because if you don't hit and steal and you don't use the bat and you don't initiate violence, and you don't threaten violence. Well, how could government exist? Well, it frankly couldn't. Yeah. It's even in in the most common definitions of, of what a state or a government is. I mean, it's right there. Uh, territorial monopolist of violence or something along those lines is the most commonly Indeed. accepted definition. It's right there. And for you and I, being followers of the Rothbardian and non-aggression principle, we just find that abhorrent and, 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 ab and, and morally vapid. Yeah, it's amazing. If you just walked up to most people and, and just sort of open-endedly said uh, – are monopolies generally a positive thing? Everybody would say no. And if you said, is <laughs> violence generally a positive thing? Everybody would say no. But then if you asked them, well, what about the state? They would come up with all these excuses rather than saying, well, gee, it combines two bad things, monopolies and violence. So uh, it's bad. But but there's the, the willful blind spot there. That's a, that's a great – you know, the thing is it's interesting too. I'm an economist by training. Monopolies can't exist without the government erecting legal barriers to competition. In other words, of course. big business and big government are married to each other. And absent a, a government functionary with a bat, a club, or a weapon of some sort, whereby these, these businesses lobby to be protected from competition, monopolies can't occur. Yeah, and again, I have to go back to Lord of the Rings metaphors, but uh, it's always seemed to me that that the, the corporations that everybody complains about, the, the you know, the 
quote unquote private sector corporations using the term loosely, that those are like all the other rings and that the state is the one ring to rule them all. So yes, yes, it's, 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 it's the root of, of the powers and the evils that the private sector corporations can do, you know, the worst things they, they do invariably when you dig into it, you find there's, you know, some regulation or some such thing going on that's enabling them to do things and get away with them. So my answer to how important is external help to guerrillas and insurgents is that it's a huge bonus to have. It isn't necessary all the time, but most of the time it, it has fared well. For instance, when you look at the, the Tamil Tigers and the, the guerrilla activity that took place in Sri Lanka when that combat was when, – when that particular conflict was going on, the Tamil diaspora, much like the Jewish diaspora globally, provided a huge amount of funding – media focus, uh, material support, that kind of thing. So there's no doubt in my mind that if I am an insurgent and I have external support, I will be more robust and strong for that. Yeah, and I've wondered in a a few cases, such as in the case of the Boers in South Africa, in in the the Anglo-Boer War at the turn of the century, would the Boers have had a, a better shot anyway at winning against the British if they would have received uh, massive material assistance from Germany or the United States or both. I and I do think that that would be the case. Yeah, and especially if, if they would have gotten a little bit of manpower assistance too. I, I guess one of the problems with, with the Boers is that they were just so overwhelmingly outnumbered that I mean, they they really had the odds against them just, just on, on sheer numbers. As, who was it, Napoleon or somebody – uh, famously said that quantity has a quality all its own. Yeah, is is the trifecta in insurgencies, with, and the mastery of that trifecta will lead to the insurgents winning. Is what I described as the narrative, legitimacy, and grievances. I'll give you a quick for instance. In the in the first American Revolution, once the Boston Massacre had occurred, and then after that, all the festivities got really sporty. And then we had Lexington and Concord. Paul Revere and others said. The narrative, they, did, they probably didn't say the narrative, but they probably knew what I was talking about. <laughs> they said yeah. the narrative is so important. We're going to get an affidavit and witness statements of what happened here at Lexington and Concord. We're going to put it on the fastest package ship we can find. We're going to get it to London. We're going to get it inserted into the newspapers, and we are going to seize the journalistic and, and narrative framework in London before the, the British Army even turns its tail to file their own official reports. So they seized the narrative high ground right away by getting that fastest packet ship, by having these witness affidavits, and by imposing and invading for these uh, journalists that they had in London at the various papers to put the story out there first. And that's a great way to really win this. For instance, when we fast forward to the modern Middle Eastern conflicts, you're astonished when you're over there to discover that in Iraq, and Afghanistan and all the other countries that I've described earlier on these podcasts, the maturity and sophistication of their use of media, especially internet media and narrative media, and knowing what Islamic memes look like and knowing the power that they have, it's very sophisticated. And I've always been baffled by that because I think to myself, CJ, in America, America is the number one provider of media. Now, I'm not talking about the quality of it. I'm talking about the sheer voracious quantity of it. They're the content provider of merit. They're the ones who deliver movies out of Hollywood. The television programming just dominates 
every place globally except for what Bollywood is able to deliver in the Indian subcontinent. Oh, and, and very sophisticated journalistic means, Ivy League schools that teach this stuff, a very large, sophisticated and, and, and well-financed uh, journalism arm in both the private sector and the government sector, the government sector, you know, reaching the narrative in the domestic homeland. But they're just the Keystone cops over there. There's they, they, they never get on top of the narrative framework. And it's funny, too, because the Coindinistas say, you know, this whole conflict here, the military is the silent, not the silent partner, but the minor partner, the, the junior partner. And, and it's the strategic framework and the socio-political framework. And it's all these things that have to do with media massaging and making sure that we can appeal to the mass base and make sure that we become the preferred, preferred provider of services and protection and safety versus the insurgents, but they fail every time. They fall flat on their face. They're so flat-footed in the delivery of that. And the Islamists, whatever their stripe, they could be a Shia, Sunni, or one of the 90 subsects, they've got, they're all over it. They, they really have full control of the Internet meme and such. So, and that astonishes me, but there it is. And, and they're not only surprisingly savvy to the technology, but as you kind of alluded to, the the Muslims understand what messages and narratives will resonate with their people in a way that outsiders yes. can never hope can never hope to match them in in that knowledge. Agreed. Just instinctively Agreed. knowing what will resonate, and that that to me calls to mind the famous Sun Tzu maxim of know your enemy and know yourself, and in a hundred battles you'll never be in peril. They, <laughs> yes. they, I, I think they clearly know themselves, and I think they've got a decent understanding of their enemy. And uh, looking at at Team America, I don't think Team America really knows its enemy or itself. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Isn't it interesting that virtually every IED event that takes place in the Middle East—I mean, I'm you know I'm looking at Libya and Yemen and all these places—they always have a videographer on hand for the event. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they they know very well that yeah. in this type of war, information and, and the narrative oftentimes trumps what's actually happening physically out there. And um, and you hear the Koinonese is saying, "Well, we've got that. We, we this is this is an information war warfare mechanism, but they don't get it because they don't do it properly." Yeah, it seems to me like it's just a mantra of saying, "Oh yes, we understand that, and we're going to work that into our into our strategy now." And yeah, they, they never do it. And, and I, I don't know if they can do it. In the first podcast, when it came to Auftragsdaktik, you know, mission type orders, where they, where now they're saying, oh yeah, we do mission type orders, but it's all lip service because it's still the the sclerotic, Sovietized, top down, centrally planned, second generation Leviathan force that's that's draped over the planet the last hundred years. Um, getting into the into the actual physical realm for for a bit, what are your thoughts about terrain and how terrain can affect unconventional warfare? Isn't it interesting, CJ, because when you and I were first corresponding and talking about doing this podcast together, you would ask me that question. I, I responded that, you know, it's almost exclusively a factor of terrain. When we look at, for instance, one of the questions you sent me is, and it dovetails nicely into what you're talking about, under what circumstances do you think that guerrillas or insurgents have the advantage? And under what circumstances do they not? And I said it's almost exclusively a factor of terrain. And the reason I said that is that when we look at this historically – we discover that mountainous terrain and state repellent terrain and even urban terrain to a certain extent, since you've been studying up on what the French experience in Algiers was of late, and when you look at the, the American and French experience 
and Vietnam in the highlands, especially on the contiguous areas of what James C. Scott calls Zomia, you find that those, what most refer to as guerrilla country, because it's a great place to operate out of. For instance, during the Spanish Civil War, who were the most ardent and, and robust guerrilla fighting forces? They were the, the mountain dwellers for the most part. And that's what you find universally when you look at this throughout history is that if it's mountain terrain like Afghanistan, like Chechnya, like Appalachia in America through the, uh, the 1930s, the highlands in, uh, in Vietnam itself and that entire Southeast Asian peninsula, wherever you have mountainous terrain, the West finds itself slogging through a lot of conflicts in which it does not prevail. Yeah, and again, I'll reference a book I've referred to many times on the Dangerous History Podcast, which is The Art of Not Being Governed by James C. Scott. And that book is mostly focused on, on that region that Bill just mentioned, uh, Zomia, as he calls it, the, the mountainous highlands of Southeast yeah. Asia. But, yeah. but Scott does in that book make lots of, of references to, to analogous situations in other parts of the world. He, he calls these places uh, state-repellent uh, terrain, or he refers to them as geography that creates friction for states trying to exercise their control. And, of course, the number yeah. one is, is mountains. But he also points out that there are other types of terrain that can cause a lot of friction for, for states. And what's interesting is how often when you look at where are like the really noteworthy, almost legendary uh, guerrilla fighters and guerrilla operations throughout history, almost every time you find them in some sort of, of friction creating terrain, whether it's mountains you do. or it, it could also be a particularly harsh desert or swamps. And so you you know Francis well, it's Marion, like you right? pointed the out the, it's like yeah and it's like you pointed out it's the Seminoles and the Everglades you know it became an incredibly hostile terrain and and it probably simply a no go area for federal forces to go in there and do what they wanted to do yeah they made a few incursions once once they had uh, pursued the remaining Seminoles those they didn't kill or deport to Oklahoma. Once they, they got them down to southwest Florida, where the Everglades were, they, the U.S. military made a few incursions in there and basically threw up their hands and said, eh, we're, not, we're not doing that. It's not worth the trouble because you had you know, swamp with sawgrass and alligators and, and uh, water moccasins everywhere and so on. And how the hell in – and the Everglades was much larger back then than it is today even. So how the hell are you going to find a few hundred Indians – in millions of acres of, of that environment. It didn't take long for U.S. forces to basically give them – It was they didn't sign a treaty with the remaining Seminoles, but they gave them a de facto reservation. They, they just sort of tacitly indicated, hey, as long as you stay in this horrible swamp area, we'll kind of look the other way and not bother you anymore. <laughs> And, and, you know, uh, and, and James Scott actually, James Scott does actually bring up the seminal a few times in, in sort of side references in Art of Not Being Governed. So, so he's aware of that as well. There's an apocryphal story from World War II in which the Australians and the Japanese were involved in a, in a scuffle near a mangrove swamp. And apparently the Japanese had to retreat into the mangrove swamp. Well, apparently night fell and all the Australians could hear all night long was screams from the mangrove swamp because it just so happened that there was a, a large alligator slash crocodile infestation there. So they were well fed that evening as a result yeah. of the Japanese being pushed into the mangrove. Yeah, think about um, a lot of the, the famous guerrilla fighters, right? I mean, even Lawrence of Arabia, where is he operating? In very, very harsh desert. 
that um, you know he, he's able to to kind of show up uh, where he's not expected and when necessary to kind of disappear, and it's because of that terrain. Well, he didn't have to rely on rail lines, for instance, for his lines of communication, but the Turks did. Is a rail line a static objective that is very subject to IED slash mine warfare? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, what's it like to What's it like to navigate through a desert environment a desert environment in which the Bedou have lived there for generations, and for them, it's natural for them to navigate through. But you've just arrived as a Turkish garrison, wherever it may be. How do you navigate there during the daytime? As a matter of fact, how do you navigate on a flat table desert at night? So. You know, there's a, there's just a, a, when it comes to the home turf, the home team, the home team advantage is always very large when it comes to the conduct of insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. What are your thoughts overall about about uh, insurgency in, in urban terrain? Because it seems to me that cities, urban areas, which I think you and I both are are not big fans of of, of uh, major urban areas. Let's just put it that way. It seems like those are areas that, during normal circumstances, that those are very, very governable, right, the, the dense urban areas. But it seems like when there is an insurgency or something like that, that those, those areas, those urban areas that are normally so amenable to state control can actually become disproportionately problematic for the state. Well, they're, they're entirely too expensive for the most part for both conventional and unconventional forces – to try to seize by force and try to take, for instance, if we look at the conventional fight in Stalingrad and other cities, if we look, if we fast forward to 1994 to 96 and we look what happened in Grozny, we look what happened to the Russians when they went in there and they were taken, they were taken to task and taken to the woodshed and got a very thorough spanking by the Chechnyans. And, and they still receive those spankings on a, on a regular basis. Unfortunately, what happened to Grozny, two years later when the Russians invested it again is they simply stood off and leveled the city because they, they did not want to replicate what had happened to them in the first battle of Grozny. So we, we see throughout history that both insurgents and conventional forces can lodge themselves in, in cities and make it very expensive to be repelled out of them. I guess it, it looks like from, from my perspective anyway, that one of the problems, assuming that, that the uh, the conventional forces of the state are not wi- assuming they're not willing to just wholesale level the place and they're they're trying to run some sort of counterinsurgency campaign in an urban area that the the big advantage that the insurgents have there I think are two one would be assuming the insurgents have have a decent amount of popular support in a city they've got eyes everywhere right they've they've got people Taking taking note of where are, where are the uh, the soldiers uh, going? What are they up to? Whatever. So you have a great opportunity for really effective intelligence network amongst urban insurgents. And, and you the would other have adv- active auxiliaries who wouldn't be trigger men for whom their job is simply that. For instance, you've seen Black Hawk Down, right? Yeah. Do you remember the first the first three minutes of the film? The the uh, the Black Hawks are coming in, and there's a boy. On top of a uh, a ridge, on top of a ridge with a cell phone. Right. When those helicopters pass over him, you see him lift his cell phone to make a call. So those kind of things, you know, and, and cell phone networks have been the best friend of insurgencies since 1995, as far as really making for effective comms and such. 
Of course, there's a dark side to that because the the cell phone exploitation capabilities of the West are quite sophisticated, and they're able to triangulate on them, follow them, maybe even not alert them to the fact they're listening in, and usually cell phones are not encrypted. But nonetheless, they've been used to advantage, as Samaya will indicate. It seems like the, the other advantage that's apparent to me when I look at at urban terrain, uh, advantage for the insurgents is the fact that you have so many non-combatants all over the place. It makes it impossible for the the counterinsurgency forces, no matter how scrupulously they might be trying to avoid collateral damage and, and non-combatant casualties. You you can't be conducting military operations in a dense city and not be hitting innocent people on a regular basis. It's just not going to happen. It, and yeah, and as, all you're doing we, is stiffening the spine of resistance and increasing the ranks of the ex- of the insurgency. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So anyway, those those to me are the two the two advantages during a time of insurgency. As much as cities under ordinary circumstances might be very amenable to state control, once there is an active insurgency in a city, it seems like it's short of leveling the city from a distance. It's it's pretty difficult to to root that out. I agree. Um, any other thoughts on on circumstances that can affect whether or not the insurgents in a particular case have have an advantage? Well, I have Bupert's Law of Military Topography, which is that if you have men with rifles who are invested in a rifle culture and know what they're about with those rifles, that they cannot be militarily defeated in detail in mountainous terrain. Yeah, I think the Swiss are a good example of that. Uh, The Swiss are a good example in so many things. Right, right. But yes. you have this, this this little independent republic right in the heart of Europe, surrounded by these giant neighbors that, you know, outnumber them tremendously. And yet they're able to, you know, protect their territorial integrity. Indeed. They, well, they certainly did their World War II. And, and I, would, I would urge uh, everybody, if they get a chance, to read about the Swiss chief of staff during, uh, during World War II and what he did not only to get his country ready – but to maintain a peace in his country in which he wasn't invaded by any of the combatant forces whatsoever. I've always said the answer to the question, who won World War II, my answer is always Switzerland. <laughs> I love that answer. They, I agree they with you won, 100%. It certainly they wasn't won the, the war by staying out of it. Yes, yeah, they, they stayed out of it. Indeed they, 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 avoided, they avoided invasion. They avoided getting bombed. They avoided having to essentially communize their society in order to participate. So to me, yep. they're, they're the winners. They didn't have their cities uh, turned into rubble or anything like that. You know, and, and now that you've mentioned that about cities turned into rubble and such, let's touch on something that all of this is, is usually tiptoed around by the Coindonistas. Strategic bombing, terror bombing, anything like that, in which civilians are known to be there from small cases to large cases, is morally indefensible. The firebombing of Dresden... The, uh, the bombing of the MOVE headquarters in Philadelphia in 1985 by U.S. police forces, the bombing that was used in Vietnam against North Vietnam, Vietnam and in Laos by the American forces, or should we say the American and the British Dominion forces who also participate in it. That doesn't, especially when you're fighting against an insurgency, much less a conventional foe, if my wife and children are maimed or murdered as a result of of a bombing campaign, that's not going to make me throw up my hands and say, yeah, man, I agree with the occupation now. They're right. They got the tater. That's not going to happen. It's, it's, it will give me a lifelong commitment to make sure that I 
revenge that dishonor that's been visited upon me or that loss that's been visited upon me. I've never understood that. And there's two great books about homicide bombings called Cutting the Fuse and Dying to Win. And the author also wrote an earlier book about strategic bombing. And it was his investigation of the moral implications of strategic bombing that made him pay attention to it. Robert Pape is his name that made him pay attention to homicide bombing and investigate what happened with that. He did an exhaustive study in which he found that 95% plus of all homicide slash suicide bombers are indigenous folks who are fighting occupation forces, period. And of course that makes sense. Yeah. And it completely counters the, the mainstream neoconish story that it's just because they are such deranged Muslims and that's why they're willing to do that. It's got nothing to do with of anything that, that we've done in terms of occupation. It's just they are such deranged Muslim crazies that they feel the need it's to do this to get their virgins. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And, and they're cowards because they fight on the ground. But you're not a coward if you're dropping bombs out of a bay at 20,000 feet and all you see is those gorgeous red blossoms come up through the, through the clouds and say, well, isn't that pretty? Even though as a result of what you've done – You've put men, women, and children in their graves or maimed them for life or whatever the case may be. But it's very antiseptic. You don't have to get real personal in a single combat sense with doing that. Yeah. And the West I, likes that kind of fighting. I've, I've never understood the rationale. And it, I guess it just shows how little most people are willing to, to really critically think through things. But the notion that people who are willing to commit suicide in order to accomplish their, their mission are cowards – they might cowards. be a lot of things, but they're not cowards. Yeah. yeah, it would I, seem to me you could hardly get less cowardly than, than that. And, yeah. and then the flip side of it is not cowardly for an 18-year-old in an air-conditioned office building in Nevada using a joystick to remote control a drone on the other side of planet Earth to blow people up. That's somehow not cowardly. Okay, folks, and that is where our connection started to fall apart, so that is where we'll have to leave it for today. I want to thank Bill again for joining me on the Dangerous History Podcast, and I look forward to recording and then sharing with you all our sixth and final installment in this discussion of the history of irregular warfare. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode, wherein you'll find links, including links to some of the books and, uh, in some cases, films that we mentioned in this episode, and links related to things that we discussed as well. Remember, you can email me any kinds of questions or comments related to the show. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. You can also get in touch with me and, and follow me in the show on Facebook and Twitter. And remember, you can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. There are multiple ways you can support the show, all of which are greatly appreciated. One is simply to help spread the good word of the Dangerous History Podcast to people you think might enjoy it. Also consider leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, there are multiple ways you can help the show out financially. One, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, is to go to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to support the show on a per-episode donation basis. You can also go to profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by purchasing items from amazon.com by first going through the links found on my website. So thank you, as always, for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ today, along with Bill Bupert, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. 
Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.